there's lots and lots of ways to improve upon relationships. You can listen to terrific podcasts. You can read wonderful newsletters. You can go to lectures together. You can read a book together or do a workbook together. You can go to like a weekend away. You can dedicate yourself to having talk time every week or a date night once a month. So my advice is to say, you know, I have been really unhappy in this relationship. I would like to invite you to work on it with me. I was thinking about couples therapy as a place where we could make a lot of gains, but it's just one option among many. It's one that I would favor. I'd be really, it would mean a lot to me if you would consider it. But if that's not something you're interested in, what are other things? So invite your partner to contribute to the brainstorming. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Travis Macy. You can find me and my books, coaching, and other information at travismacy.com. Welcome to episode 140, talking today with Yael Schoenbrunn, PhD, and Sonia Looney about navigating relationships using effective communication and realistic expectations. Yael Schoenbrunn, PhD, is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University, former co-host of the podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock, and a mother of three. Her academic research revolves around the intersection of relationship problems and mental health conditions. Her unique approach blends ancient Eastern philosophy with scientifically backed practices, helping individuals and couples manage work, parenting, and marriage more effectively. Yael's fantastic book is Work, Parent, Thrive. Sonia Looney is a coach, athlete, writer, mom, and podcaster. She's got uh, mountain biking results all over the place, including 24-hour world championship and on and on. Uh, her excellent podcast is The Sonia Looney Show, and Sonia is working very hard right now on a master's in applied psycho excuse me, a master's in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, you've heard a number of collaborative episodes with Sonia in the past, and uh, I was uh, very appreciative that she invited me to join for this conversation, which has also aired on the Sonia Looney Show podcast. Uh, we take a deep dive into relationships here, uh, talking about relationships between spouses, between friends, and just all of the uh, teammates, you know, all of the relationships that exist in our dynamic lives. Uh, some of Yael's key takeaways are managing expectations, communicating effectively, reaching toward acceptance, overcoming overwhelm, and figuring out how to prioritize love. Uh, if you're listening to this and you happen to uh, be at a point in your life where, where you've got a bunch of these pieces uh, that may include things like parenting, working, uh, exercise, trying to find time for yourself and your own passions, uh, in addition to managing uh, marriage and or other key relationships. Um, it, it can be a lot. And, uh, it, you know, we, uh, we don't offer any silver bullets or panaceas here because those really don't exist. But uh, hopefully... We provide uh, some things that you might find relevant um, to your own 
journey. Uh, thanks, as always, to our presenting sponsor, The Feed. Check out thefeed.com slash Travis Macy. Uh, one of my favorite brands on The Feed uh, is the Pro Bar, uh, and I like the Pro Bar meal on the go bars uh it's it's a it it is a processed energy bar product but compared to a lot of them uh it's less processed more real foods uh i I like all the flavors they have and pro bars i find are one of the things that i can just eat uh day after day hour after hour when i'm uh out doing uh, especially slower things outdoors. Uh, this week I've been doing some elk hunting, or maybe uh, you know maybe a long day backcountry skiing or something like that, where you're not pushing super hard all the time. You just need consistent energy. Uh, I really like those pro bars. So again, thefeed.com/slash/travismacy. Uh, please also hang around for the end of the podcast today. We are going to bring you something special. Uh, it's the First in a mini-series of the Pure Ski Mountaineering Report, presented by Hagan Ski Mountaineering. So listen in for that uh, as winter cranks up. I'm pretty excited about skiing uphill, doing some races, trying to get kids out there, and, uh, you know, just something that's uh, it's coming to the Olympics with ski mountaineering in 2026. There's a lot of energy behind it, so I want to bring people some some extra background and education on the great sport of ski mountaineering. You can find that at the end. Uh, thanks again to Yael and Sonia for a fantastic conversation here today. Uh, I hope that you find yourself enjoying it as much as I did. Yael, Travis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having having me. Good to see you guys. I was just saying before we hit record that it's so special to have both of you here because there's a lot of men that listen to podcasts. And also, like Travis just said, there's a lot of men in relationships. And a lot of times, men can think this is something that only women talk about, or maybe they secretly think maybe I need to be learning more about this. So I'm really excited that Travis is going to bring a male perspective here. All right. Speaking for all men, here we go. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, you've been on the show before and we talked about your book, Work, Parent, Thrive, which people should definitely go back and check out the book and listen to that podcast. But We wanted to have you back on because your Instagram is phenomenal and you give such great relationship advice and communication advice. I wanted to ask you, what made you decide to specialize in working with people and relationships in your practice? That's a great question. And you'd have to go way back into my history to understand my... I've long been obsessed with relationships. I'm just like a very relationally oriented person. And I don't know, you could go deep into the psychodynamics, like family of origin stuff, but it was always something that I've been interested in. I actually went to graduate school to study relationships, to study and research relationships. And it was a program as a clinical psychologist. I'm trained in a scientist practitioner model. So I did research on marriage and treatment of marriage. And then I also studied how to treat marriages in the clinical setting. And so although I wrote a book about working parenthood. I actually think about it from a relational perspective. So what I talk about in the book is how our roles relate to each other. So in my writing, in my research, and in my clinical practice, I'm just really interested in how things, including people, relate to each other, the complexities, but also the ways that they enhance our lives and how we can enhance our relationships so that they can enhance our lives even more. 
Yeah. Something that I emailed you about was about dividing responsibility. And I've seen some research saying that men think that they're doing more than they are. And women, um, I'm going to butcher this, you're going to correct me. Men think they're doing more than they think they are. And they're actually doing more than women think that the men are doing. And dividing responsibility is really challenging because in relationships, it's not always going to be 50-50. And I even saw this thing that Emily Oster posted that just kind of showed that women, no matter what the model, whether they are the primary income earner, the sole income earner, they're doing more uh, for the family. And there is a cultural aspect to that, I'm guessing. But I wanted to ask about dividing responsibility and how people can approach this so that there isn't any resentment or, or minimal resentment. Yeah, it's it's such a great question. It obviously is a very complex question, but just to kind of start off with some of the research that you're pointing to is like everybody thinks that they're doing more than the other person. And in these really interesting studies where they look at the percentages that people report contributing to the running of the household, it always adds up to more than 100% when you get both partners. <laughs> so like that can't be. And it's kind of pointing to this fact that, you know, our own contributions feel really effortful. And then to your other point, we tend to underestimate what the other person is doing. And partly it's because some of that happens outside of our awareness. Like if you even think about the kinds of contributions that you've made throughout the day, it's probably the case, assuming that you're in a committed partnership, that your your partner like isn't around to witness all of it and may just not be aware. Not to mention the fact that sometimes our efforts really cost us a lot. So like if you're helping your toddler get out the door, it feels like a big burden. So even though at the end of the day, you can say, I got my toddler out the door, that statement doesn't capture the effort that it took to get that child out the door. So the question of what we can do, I think is is complicated, but you know, even just to start with that recognition that probably our partner is also doing a lot to contribute that we're overlooking can be helpful. Yeah, I, I like it. And I, I, my wife and I got the same advice from a marriage counselor early on. You're both going to think you're doing more than uh, the other person. And furthermore, you basically have no idea what you're getting into, uh, which was also true. I had a lot of the times my strategy getting the toddler out the door. So you got like a two-year-old and an infant, you know, you take the infant, you put them in the little car seat and you just set them by the door because they can't go anywhere. And then hopefully they can hang out there for, you know, half an hour or so while you get the uh, the two-year-old ready. So um, if anyone else out there is doing that, it's it's okay. You have my approval. So my, yeah. my question, Yael, is... is um, <laughs> Uh, let's say you 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 finally find yourself in this uh, you know couples therapy session. Uh, you've listened to Michelle Obama enough. You've realized, hey, we got to go get in and do this. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you've been drugged there. Maybe you felt like you were dragging the other person there. Uh, maybe maybe it was a good you know united decision. Very often, both people in that relationship go in and thinking all right, now this is finally my chance to change the other person, you know, make them a little more on board with, uh, you know, with me or what I want or, you know, the how we uh, balance roles and that kind of stuff. My question is, is, yeah, why should we not go in with the idea that this is about changing the partner? And furthermore, what's a uh, what should we be shooting for? And maybe what are the changes over time? You talk in chapter nine of, of your great book, Work, Parent, Thrive, about this. You know, there was a previous model that was more focused on changing the other person. And now it's kind of, it's something else. So what should we be shooting for? 
Yeah. Well, I'll first just add to what you're saying, Travis, is that often people are, come into couples therapy saying, okay, I really want to change my partner. And then they're hoping that the therapist is going to change their partner. That's right. So yeah, often, that's right. That's why yeah. we go talk to you. So you can change. Yeah, them. We've yeah, already tried to change them, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which is a lot of pressure. But what I always tell people is that I cannot change people. I can help people who want to change. And, mm. and so that's an important thing mm-hmm. to remember is that we can never change somebody else. And in fact, the harder we try, the less effective effective that we're going to be. Many people Mm. have heard of this concept called psychological reactivity. And it's the idea that when we feel pressured to do something, we tend to dig our heels in and resist change. And Mm. so it's paradoxical, but the better approach, and Travis, your question kind of points to this, is to sort of make space for the person to be like acceptance. And there's this great phrase that we often use in psychology, which is acceptance paves the way for change. Because it gives people the space to come there on their own. And at the end of the day, if somebody's going to change, it needs to be self-driven. In fact, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but the, the more you want your partner to change and the more you try to push it, the less likely it's going to be. That doesn't mean that you can't plant the seed and and say, you know, I want things to be different, but it's much more helpful to say there are things that I want to grow in this relationship or ways that I want this relationship to evolve that are much more inviting for your partner. And and that is sort of the approach to take is how can you invite your partner to be a collaborator in in crafting a relationship that works better for the both of you and maybe even you know that works better for you. And so to that end, one concept that I've gotten really behind and the research behind this is very is very compelling, which is to set approach goals instead of avoidance goals. So rather than I don't want you to do that, mm. it's more how can we together build towards something that feels more satisfying, more fair for you know if, if we go back to the division of labor question more supportive, more intimate, more fun, more positive on the parenting front, for example, how can we build towards more of that together? And I think in the couples therapy context to sort of go in with that with that mode of thinking of like, you know, what is it that I want more of? How do I want this couples therapy to help me grow in the direction that feels more like the direction that I want to be going or that we want to be going? So inviting Mm. your partner to be a part of the process, setting approach goals, and then remembering that acceptance paves the way for change are three strategies that are quite helpful. Yeah, that's good. What what if, uh, you know, what if someone's listening to this and they're, and they're like, boy, I would really like to engage with a a couple's therapist, um, but my partner has made it clear that they don't want to. What about that? Yeah. Well, so interestingly, so research has been done looking at how long couples wait before they've identified a significant problem. And on average, couples wait about six years. So, Mm -hmm. and I see this all the time in my couple's therapy room, which by the way, I'm recording in. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you know, by the time couples often get to couples therapy, it's the case that like they feel like they're out of options. So I do think it's helpful to say, you know, couples therapy is an option for us. What would it look like if we didn't wait until it was the only option before Mm. we were both feeling like that's all there is that's left for us to try? The other thing, I mean, just going back to this, not sort of forcing somebody into it, I am in favor I'm in favor of couples therapy. Obviously, it's what I do for a living, but there's lots and lots of ways to improve upon relationships. You can listen to terrific podcasts. You can read wonderful newsletters. You can go to lectures together. You can read a book together or do a workbook together. You can go to like a weekend away. You can dedicate yourself to having talk time every week or a date night once a month. So my 
advice is to say, you know, I have been really unhappy in this relationship. I would like to invite you to work on it with me. I was thinking about couples therapy as a place where we could make a lot of gains, but it's just one option among many. It's one that I would favor. I'd be really, it would mean a lot to me if you would consider it. But if that's not something you're interested in, what are other things? So invite your partner to contribute to the brainstorming. Like I'm Mm. really unhappy. It feels really important for us to think about a way to improve this. Here's one option. Do you have other ideas? And if you don't, would you consider just trying it out? I like it. Yeah, I heard like the autonomy piece, like asking them what their ideas are instead of telling them what to do or what you should do is powerful. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's such at the core of psychological reactivity is that when people feel like their autonomy has been removed, they really want to regain it. And so, Sonia, you're pointing to exactly the mechanism that we want to sort of allow our partner to have is this sense of... I'm not re- I'm not taking away your agency. I'm simply inviting you to do something along with me, but you get to retain your agency and and make some decisions about how it is that you would want to approach it or even at the end of the day whether or not you want to approach it, right? Because I can't choose that for you. And in fact, again, going back to studies on 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 autonomy and on relationships, the more we allow for a no, the more likely it is that we're going to get a yes. So if we say to our partner, "I recognize that you really may not want to go to couples therapy," I will respect it, but I hope that you will consider it. That actually makes it much more likely that our partner would say yes, as opposed to, if you don't go to couples therapy with me, I will never forgive you, right? That sort of creates this um, a sense of, you know, you're backing somebody into a corner and they're going to, if they go, feel pretty resentful about it, not collaborative, which is not the setup that you want. Ultimatums usually don't feel good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And something else that you said was acceptance and acceptance and commitment therapy. You know, acceptance is a big part of this. But when does acceptance become resignation in a relationship? Because you can accept the person and you want to be as accommodating as you can, but then the person might not ever care about changing. So when do you just say, I'm accepting you and nothing's ever going to change and I'm just going to stay in this? Or, you know, when do you say it's, it's time to make a change in this relationship? Again, it depends. And I think it's such a great question. I mean, I actually wrote a newsletter about this, this, uh, and the title was like, should you stay or should you go? Kind of like the Clash song. And I do think it's a really important question that has a lot of complex answers that really depend. But, you know, it, I, I tend to be a relationship optimist. I, I think I have to be. And I have actually witnessed couples who are like, you know, my partner won't change there or, or something terrible has happened, like a, an affair or another kind of really significant betrayal. And it turns out that there's often more willingness than we're able to see because we sort of develop these, these glasses, these biases, right? Mm. Over time, if our partner has hurt us or let us down or been insensitive in particular ways, we start to not believe that they're capable of change. And in fact, most people are capable of some level of change. It just has to be a kind of environment where they feel invited and not afraid. And where you wearing your relationship glasses that has a hard time, that have a hard time seeing the, the ability to change can sort of look for disconfirming evidence because for self-protective purposes, we often come to the conclusion like there's nothing like our partner won't ever be a better person and they kind of stink and I made a mistake. So I think that there's a lot of room for questioning that conclusion. And at the same time, right, there are certainly circumstances where things are really unhealthy and not workable. And 
accepting it, accepting that this is what it is can actually open up that pathway to say, you know what, I've tried everything I can. I've I've gone to a therapist. I've tried to be inviting. I've tried to be warm and collaborative. It really doesn't seem like my partner is willing to be in a mutually giving relationship and that this isn't what I want for my life. And that acceptance actually can be clarifying. And so, I mean, that is a place where acceptance can actually set you on a path to ending. And and that may be the healthiest path forward. It's not an easy one, but that may be the most positive path that you can take. Those questions are not easy to answer. And so, you know, couples therapy or individual therapy can be a really great place or just having a supportive friend or journaling because it, it can be so complicated to disentangle what would be the quote unquote right choice. And of course, you know, any choice has pros and cons. Yeah. Back to those those glasses, Yael, uh, you know, and they're probably often they're less of rose colored glasses and more like I might say mud splattered glasses, you know, <laughs> like you're biking down this mountain bike trail, just mud in your face and, and you can't. It's like you're not even seeing, you know, what's there. Um, we we find ourselves at times hooked on these um, these negative stories or these negative, you might call it a rumination about, you know, he did this, she said that, uh, whatever. And it's these things that are, you know, playing on repeat. And, and you're very right. You know, this may be a, uh, an evolutionary mechanism that, that was helpful in keeping us alive, but it may not be the best thing for being happily in a relationship. How do we unhook from that? It's really hard. You know, he's sitting here today, you know, nice and calm and regulated. I'm like, oh, you know, when I get next time I get hooked on one of these things, I'll just boom, pop out of it. In reality, I know that once it's there, boom, my mind is like a steel trap on this thing. How do I unhook? How do I rewrite that story? Yeah, it's I love this question and and I do think that this even just the awareness that we all wear relationship glasses that that's like mm. a part a part of how we see the world and just as if you're riding and you have mud, mud splattered glasses and you've been riding for a while, you start not to notice. It just becomes, you habituate mm. to it. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that with awareness, we can start to recognize, oh, I do wear glasses and and everybody does, right? There's no way to see truth with a capital T the world is too complex. Mm. And so part of why we develop these stories is to actually be able to understand the complexity of the world. It helps us to have coherence. It helps us to anticipate. It helps us to make sense of something that's happened. And so the storytelling that we do as human beings is just a part of being human. And of course, we we tell stories about our partner, who they are and what they're capable of and what our relationship is and what it means to us and what's possible. And recognizing, so this is a skill in acceptance and commitment therapy that we call self as context. It's this idea, this notion that the mind creates labels and stories and that there are different perspectives that can be taken. And often the one that we're inside is, is our own perspective, but that is just one of many different perspectives that can be taken. And the, the second skill that, that your question points to is the skill of diffusion. Mm. And that's the ability to unhook from the stories and the labels that our mind generates. And, the, the, you know, my, one of my favorite diffusion skills is the most simple, and it's just my mind is telling me the story that, or I'm having the thought that. So it's adding this prefix that helps you to recognize that this is just a product of the mind. It's an important product of the mind, and it has some truth, and it has some utility, but it's not all of everything, and there may be limits 
to the u- usefulness that it has. And there may be important features of the world or of your partner, or of your relationship that you're missing because that story is so, um, so much covering the way that you're seeing the world. And so being able to say like, okay, I'm having the thought that or my mind is telling the story that helps us to take the glasses off a little bit and say, what else could there be? And to look actively for that information. It's almost like we have to change the filters in a pretty proactive way because left to its own device devices, our mind will naturally gravitate to these simple stories because it's, it's efficient. It helps us make sense. And when we practice it so much that it feels like truth with a capital T, even though it's just a story. Mm, I like it. Some sometimes I tell myself uh, I don't have to believe everything I think, and, and it's I also love that. it's it's also really hard to do. I, I mean, one time I wrote a whole chapter yeah. about changing stories in your mind, and I really struggle with it. Yeah, and your your question, I I, I didn't say I didn't talk about the emotion part, um, but you mentioned like it's okay here in in this nice calm collegial atmosphere where we're chatting and nobody's angry to say, oh, you know, I just unhooked from the story. But when we are angry, when we've been set off, when somebody's hurt our feelings, that's a really hard time to say, oh, no, that's just a story, (laughs) one of many. And there's an interesting physiological thing that happens when we feel emotional that explains it, which is that our attention narrows and our body kind of gets into, you know, preparation to protect us mode. And that's not when our prefrontal cortex, the calmer, more rational part of our brain can help us do this work of saying, okay, it's just a story. And so part of the practice is recognizing your cues when you get highly emotional and having some grounding or calming strategies to help your emotion come down so that you can do that work. So you got to sort of take the emotion down first, because when you're in highly aroused state, that's not the time and place where you're going to be most effective in saying, oh, it's just a story. Yeah, I want to share something that I do whenever I get frustrated and maybe you can help me make it even make this process even better, Yael. So the first thing I do is like I label the emotion because we feel these things and it's like, oh, we don't know what we're feeling. Maybe I'm angry or I'm frustrated. And then I ask myself, well, why am I angry or frustrated? What what happened here? And then I I say, well, you know, I asked this person to do this 10 times and they didn't do it. Or this person, I feel like this person is letting me down or, you know, so you, I try and figure out like, what, what am I uncovering here that has been threatened? And then I also ask, maybe it wasn't on purpose. Like maybe it wasn't intentional. There's lots of things that we don't do on purpose. And then the last thing I ask myself is, am I scanning for all the, all the ways that this person did not fulfill the need that I had? And I'm a way too focused on all the things this person isn't fulfilling versus how are they actually contributing? Yeah, I love all of those strategies. I mean, the first one is kind of the name it to tame it. And there's a whole trove of research showing the value of that strategy. And I think it was Lisa Barrett Feldman, who's an emotion researcher, who said, you know, like, aside from everything else, just naming the emotion is super, super helpful. And you can go online and Google like lists of emotions, because the more specific that you can get, the better this works of like naming, like, it's not just angry, it's like, hurt and frustrated, you know, to get like really specific about it. And the second thing that you're doing in in sort of this asking of could there be an alternative explanation is something that's very common in cognitive behavioral therapy when we work with thoughts is we ask, um, could there be an alternative explanation or is there another way of looking at this? It's sort of helping us do this, this thing, this um, looking at it from a different perspective. And at the same time, 
trying to take off our glasses and, and sort of let other information in than the lenses that we naturally might wear that are being prompted by our emotion would allow into our, uh, you know, into our brain for the, and make it available for interpretation. So I, I love those strategies. And, and I think, you know, for some people, like at the moment that they're feeling high levels of emotion, you can even do a step before that, which is just like feel your feet. And, and that's like just a way to come back into your body because a lot of the time when we feel high emotion, it's hard to even like have a coherent thought. So some sometimes for some people like going to the, who feel that real dysregulation, like the emotions really just jumped up and you don't even know sort of cognitively where to start. It's It can be a practice of feeling your feet. And what I always recommend for people who have big feelings, and I include myself among these, is to like know your cues, like what are the physiological cues that you're getting a little bit uh, aroused sort of outside of the level where it feels like your brain can kind of come in and help you do the work that would help you to get through the situation as most in line with how you want to do. And like, for example, you know, do you get uh, does your heart start to beat really fast? Do you feel heat in your face? Do you notice that your fists start to clench? And if you can kind of notice those red flags, that that can be a cue to feel your feet, hold an ice cube, take three deep breaths, splash some water on your face. So sometimes some of the more physical ways of bringing your emotion down can also be helpful as a precursor to some of the things that you might say to yourself. Yeah, all good stuff. I, I like that feel your feet. And I also like that it's nice and simple because at those times, particularly when you have two people who are both feeling dysregulated and, you know, likely have a very long and dynamic history together, uh, pretty soon, it's not even two people talking at each other. It's it's these two dysregulated things and no one is actually speaking from, you know, a sense of of self or from wisdom, as it were. Hey guys, Trav here with a quick interruption. Uh, you know, we were very lucky recently to host a big birthday party for my dad, Mace, uh, in his hometown of Evergreen, Colorado. Uh, it was dad's 70th, 70th birthday, and uh, it was super special to uh, have friends and family present uh, and just have a great uh, group of people who've been part of our journey uh, in so many ways over the years. And uh, while the uh, almost six years since dad's Alzheimer's diagnosis have uh, brought loss and grief and sadness, um, I'm, I'm glad to say there's also been a whole lot of uh, love and tenderness and really gratitude, um, you know, for for those relationships and for the new things that uh, Dad and I have found in our relationship uh, together. And even for just, um, you know, amidst the sadness and, and the loss, uh, a, a gratitude for what Dad still is able to do, uh, in, including being at a birthday party and uh, amidst maybe some disorientation, also enjoying being around, uh, you know, familiar faces and people who have been part of his life uh, over the years. Um, I, I've also had gratitude just uh, for, you, you know, in, in the uncertainty of a disease process that you don't know what's going to happen when. Uh, just the, the, the abilities that, that remain and, and dad's ability to, to go out currently and, uh, 
do do what he calls repeats trekking up and down the the dirt road next to his house you know that's kind of the one place he can go alone safely and uh and, and he loves it he's psyched to uh get out there um one thing that our family is doing uh to to support dad's wellness and honestly that i'm doing to support my uh, long-term cognitive well-being uh, is taking a supplement. Uh, it's called Relevate. It's made by NeuroReserve. It's core dietary nutrients for lifelong brain health. And this uh, dietary supplement is helping uh, bring our nutrient intake closer to the mind and Mediterranean diets. Uh, where there's good evidence for cognitive wellness. Uh, so consider checking that out. If you would, please, neuroreserve.com slash Travis Macy. Again, Relevate by NeuroReserve, core dietary nutrients for lifelong brain health. I, I read recently somewhere that um, this idea that the contemporary American marriage and and maybe maybe we should even say North American. We can lump in the Canadians uh, in here, Sonia. That, that that this marriage, like it's one of the hardest to navigate because culturally we've come to this expectation or this myth, really, of of like the perfect marriage or the perfect partner or the you know the quote soulmate, this person who will always be on board with me, the movie line, you know, you complete me, right? These these things they they all sound really good and and like it's it's the story that's sold to us. You know, how how do we navigate that and how do we if we've come to terms with the idea that like, okay, this other person is not perfect. I'm not perfect. We're, we're not perfect for each other, but neither is anyone. How do we navigate that? And and also what are the reasonable expectations to place on a marriage? If we're, if we're not going to say, well, this one person is going to solve everything for me or complete me or, you know, always satisfy all my needs or whatever. What should we do? And and what furthermore, what are other places that we might be able to meet certain needs in, in our lives? I love this question. And it it really gets to this. Oh, actually, I have this book right here. Oh, I'll, I'll lift it up. This was a book that I got really uh that sort of set me off on um the All right. marriage fascinating and history. journey. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, a nice really... thick book. That looks that, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's that's a good one to show because that shows you really yes. read. It's I'm gonna jump in read. just for a second and tell you that <laughs> I got this book when my great grandma died, and the book was written in like 1928, and it's called Ideal Marriage. And it is like that thing is is just crazy. Whenever you open it, you're just like, this is from the twenties. So anyways, <laughs> that that's sounds funny. fun. It's before audible. So they actually had to pitch through it. <laughs> yeah. But I'd be interested to know, Sonia, what was in that book? Because Stephanie Kuntz, who's a marital historian, talks about the evolution of marriage that, you know, back in the 18th century and the 19th century, that we really look to marriage for like financial protection and like physical protection. And then, you know, you sort of go forward into the early 1900s and it, it started to become more about match. And we started to think more about love, but it was really in like the countercultural revolution in like the 1960s and 50s that we really started to think about marriage as the place that was supposed to provide us with sexual satisfaction, with 
professional support, with best friendship, with co-parenting, you know, meeting of minds. And the pressures have just increasingly mounted on marriage since then. And I do think that there is so much that we expect from marriage, but the and at the very same time, just as our expectations are rising and rising and rising, we're actually contributing fewer and fewer resources because we're so taxed by the intensive parenting pressures, by the work pressures, by you know the the fact that life is just busy and there's a lot of things that we want to do and we have this idea that we should be doing it all. And I think that's okay, but we need to sort of, it's okay to expect a lot of your marriage. It's okay to want to do a lot of things, but we need to sort of recognize that there's a mismatch, that we're expecting more of this relationship and giving less to it. And marriage is not like a static thing. It's sort of a living entity and we need to nurture it with our attention if we and, and energy if we are to expect it to be able to give back to us. And we should expect it to give back to us. I think that that's sort of what you know, there's this Harvard longitudinal study in this book that recently came out called The Good Life by Bob Waldinger. It's a great read. And what they say is, on balance, the thing that makes for a happy, full life is the quality of our relationships. And that's not just your marriage, but that marriage is a big part of it, uh, or it can be if, if that is a part of your life. And so what the answer isn't to expect less necessarily, although you can, but if you do expect a lot to really think about what you're willing to contribute to it, if you want it to flourish and give back to you, you need to feed it. And so I think, you know, that is really an important question for people to be asking amidst busy lives. And, you know, I, I work with a lot of parents who have a lot of couples who have recently become parents. And for them, it's like really, really hard to make time for their relationship for totally understandable reasons. Like they're not sleeping, like they're constantly on the hook. They still need to now, now even more pressure to like sustain their job so that they can make sure that they can feed and house their new child. It's really, really hard. And so the question then becomes like, how do we find a way to conserve some things that we can send to the relationship so that we can make sure that we still have this thing that we really want to be giving back to us? And so I, I hope I'm answering the question, but but the answer is to like, make sure that it's a priority to give to it if you want it to give back to you as most people who get married do. Yeah, something mm -hmm. that was really helpful for me, and I'd love to hear your opinion about um, some of Esther Perel's work, but I first heard this that from her, like you shouldn't expect your partner to be everything and do everything. Like you need to have multiple friendships and multiple relationships in your life. Otherwise, it's way too much pressure on one person. And at the same time, like you just said, a lot of people, you know, especially that are married and have kids and are working and are doing all these things, maybe you aren't making time for friendships. Like maybe the only free time you have is maybe one hour a day at bedtime and you're so tired that you don't want to go and see your friends. So, you know, there's this pressure to not put all, all your eggs in one basket with your partner because it's kind of unfair. And at the same time, it's hard to make time to have friends and relationships. So that's kind of this interesting paradox. It is an interesting paradox, but I think that it is an important question of like, what are you spending the most time on and what are you spending the least time on? And does that match with what's most important to you and what's least important to you? Because I think that we tend to get caught up in doing things that maybe aren't of value and then we stop doing things that are really valuable. And I do think, you know, we got to give to our marriage if we want it to give back, but and and you would ask this question, I sort of went off on a tangent and forgot to include it in my response, but it is absolutely the case that we can't expect our partner to meet all of our needs, right? For example, um, 
you know, our partner may be a great listener, but may not be as good of a problem solver, or they may be really kind, but not as good at like being assertive and like sort of pushing back when on some of our ideas, like everybody's got strengths and everybody's got weaknesses. And if there are things that you're looking for that aren't your partner's strengths, that's totally fine. And, and actually works out really well if you have other friends or family members who can kind of fill whatever need that you're looking to get filled. It, it does put less pressure and allows your partner to shine in the way that they shine. But Sonia, you're bringing up this important point, which is, you know, but we don't have all the time and, and energy in the world to, you know, devote to like also the friends and also our work and also our kids and also our marriage. And I think there are realities there. But what I think is comforting is there's phases of life. Like certainly when your kids are really young, it's a hard time to make sure that you're not only, you know, nourishing your partnership, but also um, finding friends and also doing the work that's really important to you and and all the and finding time to sleep and and maybe, you know, have a break and stare at a wall once in a while. Like it, it your time is just constrained. I was actually just reading a research study that was looking at sort of the trajectory of marriage after parents had their first baby. And what they found was that there is like a pretty predictable drop, not for all couples, but for many couples, marital satisfaction goes down after they have their first child, but it tends on average to return to the level that it was before the baby arrived at about age seven, when the child turns seven, which is like when they're in school and they're a lot more self-sufficient. And so there's some hope to recognize that like a lot of the demands that can be on us when we have really young kids are time limited. And so it's really a question of like, for now, what do I want to make sure that I'm prioritizing? What do I want to keep the ball rolling on, even if it's just a little bit of effort? And what can I let go of for now? Because there's only so much time and energy that I have in a given day. Yael, I, I love what you're saying. I, I hear you talking about patience, which I think is is so important. And and you know maybe some people are more naturally wired for patience than others. It, it, for me personally, patience is really hard, and and it's good to me too. <laughs> yeah, it's good. To, it's good to hear those messages. And I, I do know in my experience, my kids are now ten and twelve. Like things have gotten easier. The fact that they're a little bit more self sufficient. I know that my wife and I feel less overwhelmed and, and it's, and a little more fun, you know, honestly, like yeah. it's fun to, at least for me, I have more fun doing stuff with kids than sort of taking care of young kids at home, which honestly was, was really challenging. That leads me this, this conversation about overwhelm and just all these demands that we feel from ourselves, from our partners, from society, from Work, uh, you talk about this again in, in your great book, Work, Parent, Thrive, uh, which I highly recommend. And you talk about in one chapter the idea of what if we consider less? You know, I think about back to another kind of uh, cycling metaphor, like when, when you're riding a bike, very often the wise thing to do is to coast for a little bit, right? Freewheel. This is when you recover. It's when you replenish. It's when you get ready to push hard again. Often we forget to or don't, don't even consider doing that in certain parts of our lives. So you say in the book that when we feel really overwhelmed and stressed, that's when we're actually most likely to add more, right? Fix mm -hmm. it, fix it, add this, add that, you know, instead of maybe, what, what if we did less? What if we could trim, you know, what if we could cut certain things out? How do we move more towards like that wisdom of doing less or how do we make ourselves okay with a little freewheeling and just allowing things to unfold as they will, whether that's professionally or in our marriage or, you know, with everything being perfect for our kids. 
And and what about the idea of here we are talking about relationships? Could the wise thing at times just be to let the relationship freewheel for a little while? You know, maybe we maybe we aren't always fix fix fix, uh, right? Maybe we just let it let it coast. Yeah. Yeah. I love this metaphor of just coasting on your bike. And and it is a perfect metaphor for what the science shows about how we tend to overlook subtraction as a good life design choice. And if listeners are interested, a a terrific book that goes deep into this science is called Subtract. It's written by Lady Klotz, who's a colleague of mine. And for me, reading this book was literally transformed my life and transformed how I approach things. Because what it suggests is that our brain is not wired to think about taking things away. We're more wired to add. And so like the classic example that I always think about is like when my house is a mess, I don't think about what I can get rid of. I'm like, I'll go to the container store and buy some more containers. I'll just add more stuff to my messy, chaotic, overly full house, which is an option and it might work, but it's important in healthy lives to balance the adding and the subtracting so that we're not just like ratcheting up the chaos all the time. And what the science shows that I think is even more important is that when we are overwhelmed, when we are more cognitively taxed, the tendency to overlook subtraction as an option becomes even less available to us. We're just not naturally likely to think about it. And appreciating that we don't naturally think about it helps us be more deliberate. So rather than just expecting ourselves to like, okay, like, well, if I'm really overwhelmed, then I'll just naturally take something off my plate. No, you won't. It needs to be more deliberate. And I think recognizing that helps you to build practices. It certainly helped me to build practices. So now when I feel overwhelmed, instead of you know just saying yes and sort of plugging on, I do a pause and I say, okay, it's too much. What do I need to take off my plate so that I can be more wholeheartedly invested and engaged in the things that really matter to me? Because the alternative is that I'm spread so thin that I do a terrible job in everything, which feels terrible to me. And I do think that the same ideas can apply to our relationship that, you know, we're like, okay, well, I'll just add more time with my partner on top of the end of the day where I'm really exhausted from work and from parenting. Well, what are ways that you can like take things away or even have down quiet time with your partner? Like, so this can be sort of a a way that you combine uh, coasting and still find a way to incorporate your partner and connectedness into the mix. And I will say that I use that for myself. My partner and I are really busy with our, our three kids and our jobs and you know all of our other responsibilities. And we both have hobbies and like to work out. But we, and we really like our downtime. So we do our down quiet time together on the weekends. And we're really deliberate. Like we, we make very few social plans on the weekends. And we, every night sort of, not every night, every Friday night at the end of an exhausting week, like we, we try to come together and sometimes like we're not awake very long, like before we pass out, but it's sort of like, that's our, that's our tradition is we come together. That is our time to be just the two of us after the kids go to bed. And so building in those kind of practices, even the quiet kinds of practices and sort of making even like a couple's commitment to doing a little bit less so that you can be more available to be together, I think can be a really healthy thing because lives are really chaotic. I want to shift gears a little bit because I think for the majority of this podcast, we've talked about perception, how we're perceiving our relationship and the things that are going on around us, you know, the things that are going on in our head. But there's a communication piece, what, what's coming out of your mouth and how that's landing on somebody else. And 
we can't control what somebody else thinks about what we say, but we can control how we say something and how we try to convey, you know, how we're feeling or what we need. So I just want to shift gears to starting to talk about communication. And I guess the first question is, you know, how do people even understand how they're communicating or get a feel for what type of communicator they are? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I certainly do a ton of communication training as a couples therapist. And I will say I've loved your episodes on communication. I I think it's such an important skill. One thing, though, that's really interesting about the literature, the studies on communication is that they matter less than we think. The thing that matters more is sort of like the the sort of feeling that you have. So it's the skills are really helpful in giving one another the feeling of being cared for, being heard, being connected, being seen, but you don't have to do it perfectly. And so I think that's just an important sort of like starting point is like nobody has to do it perfectly. It's more about effort. There's actually one study that I'm constantly sharing about on social media and with my clients that suggests that empathic effort is far more important than empathic accuracy, right? It's the effort. It's the care that we put in that matters so deeply. In terms of what kind of communicator you are, the the major distinction that I have found most useful, and this comes from cognitive behavioral couples therapy, is the distinction between discussions and problem solving. This is a really simple tip that is very helpful with your partner, with your kids at work, with friends. And it's to recognize that how you approach a conversation, what your sort of agenda is, is often not, you you may not be aware of it, but it is probably falling into one of those two categories. You either want to share what you think, feel, and how you see a situation, or you're wanting to solve something, to make a decision, to figure something out. And what often happens between communication partners or between partners in, in a relationship is they're on different pages. Like you have one person that wants to vent about their day and the other who's, who hears, like, I had a hard day, help me fix it. And so they're coming in with problem-solving strategies. And when that happens, the person who just wanted to vent about their day feels really invalidated because rather than hearing and really being sympathetic and understanding about what it is that I'm feeling and how the day went, you're telling me that I should have fixed it. But that's how it feels, even though that's not the intention of the person who's trying to problem-solve. And so appreciating that there's these two different kinds of conversations and that being on the same page and being able to clarify like, hey, I think you just heard that I wanted to problem solve, but actually what I really want was just to vent is help will help you to get more on the same page and to be appreciative, uh, to be able to connect in an appreciative way with what it is that each of you wants to get out of the conversation. And so the other point that I often make in couples therapy and and I write about too, is that people often go too quickly into problem solving when things are hard, the temptation, and and we live in a society that's, you know, and if you're good at work, you're probably a great problem solver and, and it's well and good, but in close relationships, problems are often very complex, right? They have a long history. There are triggers, there's family of origin stuff. There's your complicated housing, household division of labor stuff. Like there's, you know, what you each want in terms of your long-term and short-term agendas. It gets so complicated. And so if you jump too quickly into problem solving, you're probably going to end up generating a solution that is very simple for a complicated problem. It's not going to work. You can't simple solve a complicated problem. And when you do, it ends up being much more frustrating. So it's helpful to kind of slow down before you problem solve, like deeply discuss how do you each feel about the issue? What are your perspectives? What are your priorities? What feels important? What feels not important? What do you want the other person to know about about whatever the thing is? And to kind of slow it down. 
there's other really simple things that are important. Like, you know, if two people are speaking and nobody's listening, that's going to be pretty frustrating for both people. If you're telling somebody that if you're sort of mind reading, you feel this way, you think that that's not going to feel good for that person. This It's not going to be very connecting. So there's kind of some simple tips and you talk about them too, of like speaking from your own experience, sharing things subjectively, not objectively, being curious, expressing curiosity about how somebody else feels doing turn taking. So some of these basic communication skills are really helpful, but again, you don't have to do it perfectly. The point is to sort of show up and give your partner the sense that you care, you care to express yourself and be known and you care to hear and and know better about the other person. Yeah. I, this might be off topic a little bit, but something that I experienced in past relationships was that I like, I'm not somebody that yells and screams. I'm very calm. Whenever I'm having conversations, I try to not let things escalate. And because of that, previous partners would perceive that I wasn't that upset about it, that this isn't that big of a deal. And I would end up eventually ending the relationship over, you know, one of those things that I brought up repeatedly and feedback that I received multiple times was, well, you didn't seem that upset about it. Like, I don't understand why this is such a big deal because I wasn't yelling and screaming and getting all emotional. So, I mean, that's a communication thing. It's so, like how, how to better convey that this is a big deal if you're not somebody that wants to get agitated and emotional and yell and scream. Yeah. You're raising something that comes up a lot in couples therapy and it for the person on the other side. So like your partner, they probably were like, where's this coming from? I thought everything was fine. Like you just pulled the rug out from under me and you were probably more of the mind. What are you talking about? I've said this so many times. How did you not hear it? And and it is it's really a communication issue and people having those glasses on and your partner, for example, saying if she was really upset, her voice would be raised, right? Then I would understand it. But the fact that she's speaking so quietly, I'm going to interpret as it's not such a big deal. And so I think, you know, it's both on the shoulders of the listener to sort of be more attentive, like, oh, this keeps coming up. So I will say, you know, one cue is if you find that a conversation keeps coming up, like pause and get curious. And I think the best question to ask is you keep raising this and I think I understand it, but the fact that you keep raising it might mean that I don't. What is it that you think that I don't yet understand? Mm, And just like getting curious on the listener side, I think is really helpful. On the speaker side, if you're noticing that your partner isn't appreciating the depth of your upset or the depth of whatever the thing is that you're trying to communicate, to pause and say, it doesn't feel like you're understanding me fully. And maybe we can try a little bit of that paraphrase, like the sort of, I'll say it and you reflect back what you think I said. And then through that, we'll figure out like where the gap is. Because I don't feel like you totally get it. You do, but let's have that back and forth of me saying, me making the statement, you reflecting it back, and then try to figure out like what is it that's getting lost in translation? Because if you keep saying the same thing, they're not going to hear anything different. In navigating these sorts of communication style differences, Yael, is it is it helpful to look at, you know, both partners, families of origins, maybe, or, or, you know, maybe, maybe in one family, Sonia's, for example, you, you know, people talked about big, important issues and, and they weren't yelling. They were, they were talking. That's, you know, that's the experience she had, you know, maybe someone else had an experience where the house they grew up in, if something big came up, people were, people were what some might perceive as yelling or angry and maybe in their family it was just like this is how we navigate 
you know, big issues, uh, which I know from experience can be, you know, when those two styles meet, you know, maybe one person has a sense of like, oh, if she really cared, she would have gotten all fired up about it. And, and maybe, maybe another person has an experience like, what is this, this, you know, yelling or whatever, like, that's not how people who love each other treat each other. How do you navigate that? And does that usually have to do with, you know, family of origin, would you say? Yeah, a family of origin certainly plays a role. Although interestingly, you know, you can, it can go either way. Like if you grew up in a family where there was a lot of conflict, you, you might think, you know, speaking loudly and, and more aggressively is okay. Or you might go the opposite way yeah, and say, that was so that. painful as a kid, I'm going to do the exact opposite. And if you, yep. if you start getting aggressive, like I'm out, that's too much for me. It's triggering. Yeah. So it can go either way, but it is helpful to understand like, what are your ways of communicating and what do they represent? And to mm. kind of p- break through some of those overarching stories that you might tell like oh you know a loving person doesn't doesn't yell right that might be a belief that you have and that's a story that makes sense but also isn't entirely true lots of loving people yell parents love their kids and we mostly yell <laughs> not that we mostly yell but most parents yell at some point and it doesn't mean that you don't love somebody but it is a particular way of expressing yourself that works for some that sort of more a fit for some people than others. And so getting curious, like, what does it mean when I yell or when you yell? What, what am I trying to communicate? Or what does it mean when I very quietly tell you that I'm upset? Like what, and, and to be able to, to say, I don't think you totally understand that when I speak to you quietly, that's actually really meaningful for me. And I need you to pause and really pay attention. And you can explain, you know, that comes from my background. Like I come from a quieter family or it's more temperamentally consistent with how I want to show up. It's more consistent with my values. Like I want to show love in these quiet sort of uh, level-headed ways. And so to be able to share with your partner what the meaning of the way that you're communicating is and how they can understand you better. Because being understood, being seen in a deeper way is part of, is one of the hallmark characteristics of happy couples. They feel like their partner sees and kind of gets them and is interested in sort of an overtime way, knowing them more and more and more deeply. And as they change, being interested in knowing the new parts of, of you that emerge over mm. time. So understanding the history, understanding the present and being curious about like how you're going to go forward, I think is so important. And being able to talk about that is is such an important part of relationships. Yeah, that's really helpful and wise. Thank you. So we have time for basically one more question, which I feel like there's hours of conversation we could have. And we haven't even talked about friendships, which is something that I've thought about a lot in my adult, you know, progressing adult life. So, okay, final question. How do you not take things personally? Like in Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements, one of the four agreements is do not take things personally. I take things personally and I'm working (laughs) really hard to not do that. How can I work on this? (laughs) I take things personally too. But it is, it, there's there's lots of interesting strategies. Actually, Jill Stoddard, who I don't know if you've had on before, but I love so much of the way that she, some of the practices that she develops th- for ACT, for acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of them is is sort of, um, I think it's like WWOD, what would Oprah do? And I think it's really helpful to say like, what would Oprah think? Or like a friend who doesn't take things personally. Like I have a friend called Erica and she never takes things personally. So I always think, but how would Erica interpret this? What would Erica think? WWET. Go Erica, so, let's get her on the next yeah, podcast. Yeah, I know, she's awesome. She's not a psychologist, <laughs> but she's so, she's so good about not taking things personally. But I think it is, it's really the practice of, 
self is context, recognizing that we have a tendency to take that certain temperaments, and I, I happen to be one of them, tend to take things personally. We're internalizers, right? Internalizers versus externalizers. Internalizers tend to say, what did I do? <laughs> like, are you mad at me? Or, you know, did I, did I mess that up? If My husband was actually just telling me yesterday that if something went wrong and it had nothing to do with me, I would still say, oh, sorry about that. And, and I totally would. Like, I, I always think it's my fault. And so the practice is to notice that you have a tendency to do that, that that's a patterned way of thinking and interpreting the world and to unhook from it. Okay, I'm having the thought that this is about me. And to do a bit, Sonia, of what you were describing earlier, could there be alternative explanations in the past when I thought something was my fault or, or that this was a real personal attack? What what was the conclusion of that of that story? Like, what was the conclusion of what happened? Was it actually my fault? Is it sometimes the case that I think it's my fault and it's not at all my fault? And so to kind of pause in that story, unhook from it, and then what I think is really helpful, and and certainly you've talked a lot about this on your podcast, and we talk a lot about this in acceptance and commitment therapy to reconnect to your values. So how do I want to show up in this moment where something isn't going quite right, and I'm taking it kind of personally? Do I want to be assertive? Do I want to apologize? Like if it really is my fault. Should I apologize? I think that's that's valuable. Or what I have started to do, because I mean, the one thing that's important in acceptance and commitment therapy to recognize is like there's no delete button in the brain. If you tend to personalize, you might simply personalize. So, like for me, it's just a thought. It, it happens often. But that behavior that can follow can be really different, even though the thought persists. And so for me, it's I'm not going to respond as if it was personal. I'm going to respond as if it's not personal. And if it is personal, I'll figure it out. I'll apologize. I'll make it right. But for now, I'll just kind of let that thought be and let a different value guide my behavior forward. So it's um, selfless context, recognizing that our story, our mind generates stories, unhooking from those stories, and then letting values guide the way forward. All right. I'm going to keep working on that. <laughs> it's, it's tricky. I, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah. If we can get that delete button, uh, you know, maybe in the next <laughs> five so years good. or something, uh, I'll, I'll, I'd probably buy one. Hopefully it's covered by insurance, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you so much to both of you for coming on the podcast. And I also highly encourage everybody to follow Yael on Instagram. A lot of these things that we've talked about, she has amazing content on there that is actionable <laughs> and helpful that I personally am always looking for and at. So thanks thanks for all the work you're doing, Yael. And this is such a great conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. I always love talking with you, Travis. It was so nice to meet you. And I'm such a huge fan. So thank you guys so Likewise, much. Likewise, Thanks on. to you both. I uh, really enjoyed your book. Hey, folks, thanks as always for listening. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed uh, taking in that wisdom about relationships from Yael Schoenbrunn, PhD, and my friend and collaborator, Sonia Looney. I uh, appreciate you listening. appreciate you being part of this journey. Uh, please help us keep growing this podcast. Uh, share it out with other people. Social media, text it on over to your friends. Like, rate, review, subscribe. Uh, really appreciate your support with all of that. Uh, and honestly, I, I work really hard on this uh, podcast. Uh, it, it's pretty hard to earn money podcasting, as you probably know. Uh, if you want to support my work, uh, please consider looking at one or both of my books. Uh, that's The Ultra Mindset and A Mile at a Time. You can find those on my website, travismacy.com. 
Uh, you can also find them both in audiobook form on Amazon. Again, The Ultra Mindset and A Mile at a Time. Uh, thanks, as always, to The Feed, your presenting sponsor, thefeed.com slash Travis Macy, the brand I mentioned before the podcast, uh, Pro Bar. Check those out. Um, I really like them. Pro Bar, Meal Bar, nice uh, bar with high calories and uh, just less processed than most of the bars out there. Please also consider checking out Yael's book, Work, Parent, Thrive. You can find that wherever books are sold. Uh, check out the Sonia Looney Show podcast, one of my favorite things to listen to each week. And uh, please go to Yael's website, yaelshonbrun.com. Uh, she's got an email newsletter uh, that I really enjoy reading uh, each time that comes out. All right, guys. Uh, thanks as always. We will catch you next week on the Travis Macy Show. And before you go, hang on here for the final couple minutes. The Pure Ski Mountaineering Report presented by Hagan. Hey, this is Travis from the Travis Macy Show podcast. And this is Mike Hogan alongside Travis from Hagan Ski Mountaineering. And welcome to the Pure Ski Mountaineering Report by Hagan. Mike, we're kicking it off with the big question. What is Schemo? Uh, some of us in this sport, we've heard all these names. Rondonet, ski mountaineering, touring, ski touring, alpine touring, backcountry skiing, skinning, uphill skiing. Uh, Mike, what does Schemo or ski mountaineering mean to you? Uh, like all good answers there, it depends, right? It depends who you are, where you are, what part of the world you're in. They all have different names, but um, ski mountaineering in general is the art, a uh, beautiful art of exploring the winter mountains um, by climbing uphill with skins on the bottom of your skis with your heels free and uh, getting to the top or as high up as you want, ripping off those skins and locking in your heels like an alpine skier and enjoying glorious turns in snow all the way down to where you can do that again. Yeah. All right. Gotta love it. And and that, of course, I think is a key difference uh, between ski mountaineering and Nordic skiing. With Nordic skiing, you could be uh, doing typically either classic or skate skiing. And with each of those, the toe is always connected, but the heel is always free. Whereas with ski mountaineering, like you said, when, when you're skiing back down the hill, typically you're clicking the heel in, adjusting the boot so it's nice and stiff, and skiing back down alpine style. Yeah, I think um, with the main difference, I mean, if you look at Nordic skiing, you're typically going over rolling terrain. If you look at ski mountaineering, you're typically in mountainous terrain. Mm. So being a cross-country skier at heart where I love kicking and gliding or skating, um, both free heel, um, I've learned to to really enjoy the the ability to you know get up into places that people really sh couldn't get, not shouldn't get, but in safe conditions to get. Um, but and then being able to lock in and have the control and you know freedom of of um, you know downhill skiing, alpine skiing coming down is quite a treat. 
Yeah, excellent. Uh, so, Mike, if someone wants to try ski mountaineering, what are the uh, basic pieces of of gear that they need um, to get going? Whether whether that's uh, you know front country in a in a ski resort where you're uh, skiing maybe up the runs or next to runs, or in the back country, uh, you know on on public land peaks. Uh, et cetera. And we'll be talking later about, uh, you, you know, safety access, those kind of things. But to get started, what are the basic gear items someone might need? Like any skiing sport, it's skis, boots, poles, bindings, and skins for um, for backcountry skiing. So, you know, those are the basics. Um, and having that, you know, the right equipment for where you are, whether you're in Canada or whether you're in, you know, Zermatt or whether you're in Colorado or in you know, Western Massachusetts, um, I think it depends, you know, the, the condition specific based upon width and length of, of skis, um, how heavy, how light, um, how fast or how uh, relaxed you want to uh, have your experience. But there's something for everyone there. Um, I think one of the things in terms of, of access, um, there's a, you know, out east, there's a group called Uphill New England that has um, put together a, a great um list of uphill friendly alpine ski areas um here in colorado um i spend a lot of time at winter park i know you ski a lot at monarch mm-hmm. um both have fairly um friendly uphill policies so the ability to you know go and, and skin up to the top of, of winter park and and you know even go inside have a hot chocolate um put your you know put your skins away lock your heels in and and go down at your own pace is a you know really great experience to be able to have, um, and then things can be more progressively I guess risky in terms of um, where you're going to um, avalanche danger that are big concerns that we're going to cover you know sometime later. But I would recommend to anyone to try it out at a, a uphill friendly ski area first and foremost, and then you know learn the skills that you need to learn to be able to move efficiently. And then learn some of the safety uh, precautions and hazards that you need to look for to decide where you can have your type of fun. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, uh, good stuff. Um, Ski mountaineering, one of the best winter sports around. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's Pure Ski Mountaineering Report by Hagan. Uh, We will be back in the future talking about things like racing, uh, training and coaching, gear maintenance, backcountry safety, uh, all that good stuff. You can find Hagan skis at haganskimountaineering.com and you can find the Travis Macy Show podcast wherever podcasts are available. The Travis Macy Show is part of the Palm Tree Pod co-network of podcasts. It is produced and edited by Anthony Palmer. The content for this episode is created by me, Travis Macy.